Good morning, new community. Thanks for coming out in the rain. This morning, we are going to be kicking off a new series uh, titled We Believe, in which we will be exploring the truths affirmed in the Apostles' Creed. Many of us, uh, if you've been with New Community for any length of time, you know that this is something that we typically recite during our communion liturgy. But we'll spend the next almost 11 to 12 weeks considering and learning about not only how the truths affirmed in the Apostles' Creed shape our understanding of God and ourselves, but also we'll get an opportunity to think about how the creed informs the ways in which we contribute to and engage with the world around us. This morning, we are going to consider the first line in the Apostles' Creed, which simply says, well, I should say this, the series is titled, We Believe. And so we're going to interchange the, the eyes with we's, okay? So it's going to say, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And so to do that this morning, we're going to explore several passages of scripture. I'm not going to read them all this morning here at the outset, but if there are two verses or two passages that I think capture our time, one is going to be found in Genesis uh, chapter one, verse one, and the other will be found in the gospel of John chapter one. So if you're able to please stand for the reading of God's word. So I'll begin here in Genesis chapter one, verse one. Which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in the Gospel of John, beginning at verse 1, chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day, this opportunity to gather together uh, as a community of faith, uh, to speak to you through our songs of praise, through our worship, uh, we, think, we thank you even for the rich fellowship that we experienced during the greeting time and the ways in which uh, you use those moments to encourage us in our faith. Uh, we now ask, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word, uh, that we would receive it not as the words of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. We pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. S stories captivate our hearts and evoke our imaginations. Stories hold within them the power to stir our anger or prompt our deepest joy. But the power of stories lies not merely in their ability to convey tales of hope and heartache. Through storytelling, we find the courage to explore the depth of our emotions, to confront our fears, our doubts, and our vulnerabilities, and to recognize the common threads that connect us all. This profound truth resonates throughout the pages of Scripture, where we witness Jesus employ storytelling as his 
primary means of communication. Instead of mere teachings on compassion, uh, he imparts the story of the Good Samaritan. Instead of outlining principles of grace, we read of his unmerited favor bestowed upon the woman caught in adultery. The concept of forgiveness, far from being a mathematical formula, unfolds through the narrative of a father and his two sons. These stories imprint themselves upon us, molding how we engage with others and more importantly, shaping how we encounter God. As we begin our series on the Apostles' Creed this morning, I think there is a temptation for us to perceive the creed as simply a string of propositions, a collection of words, an idea of human construct that simply summarizes what we believe. But I submit to you this morning that the creed is not a mere intellectual exercise. Instead, what we find in the creed is a living story that reveals the grandeur of creation, the imperfection of humanity, and the redemptive work of God. You see, when we grasp the depth of this story, and more importantly, when we embrace it with belief, everything looks different. God ceases to be a distant deity or a philosophical concept to be debated. Instead, the living God emerges, a compassionate and just and intimately involved father who lovingly shepherds his creation. But not only does God look different, the world looks different. Injustice, suffering, and inequality become part of a larger narrative of hope and restoration. They are not viewed as insurmountable obstacles, but as opportunities for God's transformative power to manifest. And as we embrace the truth of this story, not only does God look different and the world look different, but we look different. We enter this story not as passive observers, but as active participants. We are invited not only to confess our faith verbally, but to embrace the power of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And it is here where our perspectives shift, where our priorities realign and our actions are infused with a sense of meaning and intentionality. And so as we look at the Apostles' Creed this morning, we must understand that it is not a mere mantra or relic of history. It is a poignant reminder that amid the complexities of theological debates and doctrinal interpretations and religious traditions, the creed is a living story that forms the foundation of our faith, that holds the transformative power for our lives, and that offers the compelling reason for our hope. So it's my prayer that as we go throughout this series that we would wholeheartedly embrace this story and the truth that it affirms, allowing its power to transform us from the inside out, shaping every aspect of our lives. And so we begin this series again, focusing on just the first line in the Apostles' Creed, which again reads, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. 
And so here we see three major themes that will be the focus of our time this morning. We see God presented as Father. Oh, I'm sorry, we see God presented as eternal, as Father, and then as Creator. Thus, the first line in the creed here calls us to behold the eternal character of God, the compassionate fatherhood of God, and then finally, it calls us to behold the creative power of God. And so we begin with the eternal character of God. Uh, to do that, we go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which simply says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this phrase, in the beginning, God, it it unveils his active role as the initiator of all things, as the ultimate cause and foundation of the world. And so before the heavens were formed, before the sun and the moon and the stars adorned the sky, there was God, existing independently and self-sufficiently. We see this truth echoed throughout the scriptures. Uh, Jeremiah hails God as the eternal king, a title that captures his everlasting reign and sovereignty. Psalm 93 declares that God is from all eternity, emphasizing his existence beyond the boundaries of time. And in Exodus chapter 3, God reveals his name to Moses as I am who I am, a phrase that speaks to his unchanging nature throughout eternity. Serving as a reminder that he possesses life within himself and that what he is now, he has forever been. And so maturity and growth have no place in his eternal being as he stands beyond the concept of development. The passing of years bear no influence on his strength and wisdom as he remains immune to the temporal fluctuations that shape our human existence. What he is now. He has forever been. Now, this, this may sound like theological gibberish, right? Talk of the immutable, eternal, pre-existence of God. You may be wondering, what significance does this hold? How does God's eternal existence bear relevance in my life? How does it bear relevance in the lives of our community of faith? Well, the eternal existence of God holds profound significance because it shapes our understanding of God in the face of a fractured world. Think about this with me for a second. Daily, we are confronted with the harsh realities of brokenness where the indignity of poverty and the terror of violence persist, where the cries of suffering children and the wreckages of failed marriages abound, where injustice remains and tyrants seem to flourish, where our work seems futile and the inevitability of death looms. These sobering realities plant seeds of doubt into our consciousness. They shackle our hope casting long shadows of uncertainty upon our fragile faith. And so in the depths of our questioning, we wonder, has God's strength fainted? Has has God's care faltered? Has God's mind forgotten? In the depths of our questioning, our once majestic view of God is diminished. His power constrained 
his love seemingly confined. These doubts that surround the eternal character of God are not new. For writing millennia before, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 40, addresses a disheartened community, weary and exiled in Babylon. And the weight of their circumstances has led them to question the very presence and concern of God. They cry out in despair that their way is hidden from God, that their cause is being disregarded. But the prophet does not allow their doubts to linger unchallenged. With rhetorical brilliance and penetrating truth, he speaks hope into their wearied souls. He he poses this question to them in verse 28. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the eternal God. He created all the world. He never grows tired or weary. And so here Isaiah directs their attention to the eternal character of God. He asserts that moral limitations cannot be opposed upon him, that his strength is not subject to diminishment, that his energy does not wane, that his sovereignty extends beyond the scope of their exile, and that his authority stretches to the ends of the earth. And so surely... If he possesses such dominion, if he possesses such power, if he possesses such authority, he cannot be indifferent to the plight of his people, for he is the watchful guardian, the tireless caretaker of his children. And in the echoes of Isaiah's message, we find a thread of similarity with our own story. Because like Israel in exile, we too can become disheartened by the trials and uncertainties that surround us. We may feel as if our way is hidden from the Lord. That our pleas go unnoticed. That our causes are disregarded. We ache for the restoration of what has been broken. We long for God's healing touch upon our wounded world. And in the seeming absence of God's divine intervention, it is easy to question whether God sees, whether God hears, whether God cares. But it is precisely in this weariness that Isaiah's prophetic voice speaks to us across the ages. Do we not know? Have we not heard? The Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, never grows weary or tired. His presence and power extend far beyond the confines of our limited vision. And so therefore, let us intentionally reframe our perspective, redirecting our gaze from the overwhelming trials that surround us and to the eternal character of God. For though our broken world resounds with the echoes of pain, We must cling to the assurance that God's eternal nature guarantees the fulfillment of his promises. That God's eternal nature guarantees the unfolding of his redemptive plan. And that God's eternal nature guarantees the ultimate triumph of his eternal love. God's eternal nature guarantees that one day we will enjoy a life untainted by the stains of sin and brokenness. So the creed here directs us to behold the eternal character of God. Secondly, the creed directs us not only to behold the eternal character of God, but also to behold the compassionate 
fatherhood of God. In the Apostles' Creed, the depiction of God as the Father Almighty signifies a relationship characterized by the tenderness and care and provision that a father offers his children. Now, there is much we can say about the fatherhood of God, uh, but we, only, we, don't have, we don't have time this morning. But there are two things I want to highlight this morning, both of which are found in Psalm 139. And so the first thing we see in Psalm 139 is that God is the father who knows us intimately. Consider what the psalmist says, beginning at verse one. He says, oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, my sitting down and my rising up, you understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, O Lord, but behold, you know it all together. You've hedged me behind and before you and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And so the psalmist begins by acknowledging the omniscience of God who has searched and known him intimately. This act of knowing goes beyond mere information. It reflects a heart of a loving father who connects with his children, who takes notice of the small details, who understands the unspoken needs and longings and struggles of his child. And so the psalmist makes clear that God is not some impersonal deity, not fate or chance or karma, but he is a God who lovingly cares after his children, a God who longs to have an intimate relationship with his sons and with his daughters. Now, for some of us, the idea of God as father is natural. It's easy to embrace. We've been blessed with fathers who invested meaningful time into our lives, imparted valuable life lessons, fathers who faithfully provided for our needs. And so in them, when we catch a glimpse albeit an imperfect one, but we catch a glimpse of what God the Father is like. However, not all of us share the same testimony. I recall encountering a young man years ago at a, at a men's conference who confessed that he struggled to utter the word Father in prayer. To him, it meant hurtful things. It meant broken things. And some of you can relate all too well with this experience, right? The the absence or neglect of your earthly fathers has made it exceptionally challenging for you to embrace the concept of God as father. You wonder how you can understand God's love and his faithfulness when your dad abandoned you. You wonder how God can be a protector when your dad's touch brought pain instead of comfort. And it's been a daily fight, a ceaseless battle not to assume that God takes more pleasure in disciplining you than he does blessing you. But as we encounter the truth here in Psalm 139, it invites us to bring our brokenness into the presence of our Heavenly Father. This psalm encourages us to pour out our doubts and our questions and our struggles before him, knowing that he is intimately acquainted with our hearts, 
in his perfect knowledge, he understands the complexities of our experiences, the wounds that have scarred us, the insecurities that shape us. And he is the father who meets us in our brokenness. He is the father who gently reshapes our perception of what it means to be a child of God. And so here we see that God is the the father who knows us intimately. But as the psalm continues, we see that God is also the father who pursues us relentlessly. Consider what he says in verse 7. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the othermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Our traditional notions often paint God as a stationary figure, a God who sits on his heavenly throne. However, the psalmist here offers a different perspective of God. He he reveals a God who is not confined to one place, but a God who is mobile and active. A God who follows us, a God who pursues us, a God who chases after us. You see this truth illustrated throughout the scriptures. After 40 years in the desert, Moses turned to see a burning bush. God had followed him into the wilderness. Jonah, attempting to flee from God's call, found himself on a boat amid a raging storm. God had followed him into the sea. The Samaritan woman, burdened by her pain and isolation, encountered the Messiah at the well. God had followed her through her brokenness. Peter, weighed down by the shame of denying his Lord, went back to fishing. But when he heard his name called and saw Jesus cooking breakfast, he was reminded that God had followed him despite his failure. Lazarus, even in the grip of death, heard a voice and lifted up his head to to see Jesus standing before him. God had followed him even into death. God's relentless pursuit of us extends beyond the pages of Scripture and into our own daily lives. In moments of mourning, God pursues us with hope. His presence whispering to our weary souls, reminding us that we are not alone. In seasons of doubt, God pursues us with truth. He invites us to draw closer to him, reminding us that his promises are without fail. And in moments of failure, God pursues us with grace. He invites us to lay down the heavy burdens of shame and to receive the restoration that his forgiveness brings. So in the compassionate compassionate fatherhood of God, we encounter a God not only who knows us intimately, but we also encounter a God who pursues us relentlessly. Finally, we behold not only the eternal character of God and the compassionate fatherhood of God, but thirdly, we, we behold the creative power of God. Now, again, there's much we can say about the creative power, the creative genius of God. There's just two things that I want to highlight for us this morning. First, we witness the creative power of God in the design of creation. We'll go back to Genesis chapter 1 
just read a few verses here, verses 2 through, let's say verses 2 through 8. Beginning at verse 2, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Now, the act of creation as described here in Genesis is marked by God's power or marked by the power of God's spoken word, right? His words carry within them the power to shape and give form to the world we inhabit. And so from the change of the seasons to the tides that caress the shores, everything bears the imprint of God's creative hand. Now, when we reflect upon the magnitude of of God's creative genius, it should evoke within us a sense of wonder. And curiosity. It should cause us to look upon the world with new eyes, seeing the beauty that surrounds us. And as we come to recognize the profound intentionality behind God's creation, we are humbled not only by our smallness, but we are also humbled by our significance. Say, so what, what do you mean by that? Well, consider his words in, later on in Genesis chapter 1. As God blesses the first man and woman, and then he imparts to them a divine mandate. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish and the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So as we look at God's creation, yes, we feel small, but we also play a very important role. Now, to exercise dominion is not an invitation to willpower without restraint. Rather, it's an invitation to exercise responsible and compassionate oversight. It means to rule with wisdom, to rule with grace, and to make choices that uphold the sanctity of life in all its forms. And so here we are confronted with the reality that our choices, both individually and collectively, shape the world that we inhabit. We have the power to nurture or to degrade, to harm or to heal, to build up or to tear down. For in the revelation of God's power, we find not only an invitation to marvel at the wonders of the created world, but we also find a call to action. It is a call to live with reverence, to honor the creator by being good stewards of his creation. It is a call to advocate for justice to work towards the restoration of what has been marred by human brokenness. And it is a call for us to embrace our role as caretakers as we seek to preserve the beauty and integrity of the world that we inhabit. So we witness the creative power of God in the design of creation. And then finally, we witness the creative power of God in the transformation of humanity. 
To put it simply, the, the same God who formed the mountains, the same God who painted the sunset, is the same God who seeks to, to bring about a transformative work within us. We see this truth illustrated in the New Testament. Many of us know this verse well, Paul, as he's writing to the church of Corinth, he says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Now, in the Greek, that's the language that Paul is writing in, there are two primary words for new. The word uh, neos and kainos. All right. Now, if you're not a seminary student, you, you don't have to go to seminary to understand this. Neos refers to newness in terms of time. Okay. So it suggests a sense of progress within an existing framework. For example, the latest iPhone or MacBook Pro represents advancements within the realm of technology. And so when you hear the word neos, you should think renovation. You should think upgrade. On the other hand, kainos, kainos does not refer to new in terms of time. Kainos refers to new in terms of kind. It signifies something unprecedented, something so new that the world has never seen it. And so when Paul says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, he is not referring to new as it relates to time. He is referring to new as it relates to kind, something so new that the world has never seen it. And so here in 2 Corinthians, Paul asserts that Jesus' purpose was not merely to improve or upgrade humanity, but to bring about a radical and unprecedented transformation. He suggests that Jesus' death was not aimed at making individuals better within their existing nature, but at creating an entirely new kind of humanity. C.S. Lewis would say it this way, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. He goes on to say, it's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. And so Jesus did not die to make modifications or adjustments to our lives. No, his life, his death and resurrection provide us with a new will and a new heart, a new wisdom and new desires, a new power and a new love, a new inheritance and a new citizenship, all of which can be summed up in the newness of life. And so it's not simply that we have become someone, not simply that we have received something new, we become someone new. So the same God who transformed the world from nothing is the one who desires to bring about a transformative work in us. As we round third head for home, this morning, we have been reminded of the transformative power embedded in the Apostles' Creed. This confession calls us to behold the eternal nature of God, anchoring our lives in his enduring hope. This confession calls us to behold the compassionate fatherhood of God, abiding in his unwavering love. 
And this confession calls us to behold the creative power of God, recognizing our role as participants in his ongoing work of redemption. And as we behold our God, may we be encouraged to live as testimonies of his grace, of his love, and of his power in a world that desperately needs it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We pray that you would seal these truths to our hearts. And that we would be hearers and doers of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.